Well, that's the theme of the forgiven heart, is it not? What a joy. Let me invite your attention to Mark chapter 2. Mark, the second chapter. You know, I've wondered at times what it would be like for some of the cartoon characters we've known through the years to be forgiven by God. And frankly, some of them need it. I think, for example, of Dennis the Menace. Margaret got frustrated with him one day, and she said, Don't you ever think before you speak? He said, Nope. I want to be as surprised by what I say as everyone else is when they hear it. On a more serious note, back in 2011, Tim Tebow and his mother produced one of the most famous and popular television commercials ever in broadcasting history. It was the story of how she was counseled to abort Tim, but had him... Uh, anyway, the National Religious Broadcasters named it the very best commercial of the year, and it's estimated by one research outfit that 5 million people reconsidered their decision to abort children. One lady saw it, and she called Focus on the Family. Her name was Susan, and she reported that her father wanted her to have an abortion. She was pregnant out of wedlock, and she called, and she reconsidered. She said, while I know God isn't proud of me for this pregnancy out of wedlock. Thank you for reminding me that he still loves me. I didn't need to compound one sin with another. My sin can't be erased, but I can ask for forgiveness. And I want to say whatever's burdening you and embarrassing you in your private moments today, the Lord Jesus Christ would love to forgive you, even if it's an abortion. One Bible teacher in Florida was offered a much larger salary than what he was making to come on board with this psychiatric practice. And he said, what they need is not necessarily what I'm offering. They need a preacher to introduce them because their unresolved guilt is eating them up. And I want to ask you, are you struggling with unresolved guilt this morning? Something's not resolved in your heart. There are several signs of this. One, you may feel so unworthy and unvaluable that this keeps you from better things. I'm worried especially about high-achieving young men and young women dating those of much lower moral and intellectual and disciplined character and caliber. Sometimes I scratch my head at that. And I'm not talking about social differences. I'm talking about young men and young women dating folks that don't have the same character and aspiration and discipline that they do. They date people of lower caliber. And some do that with one relationship after another and sometimes one marriage after another. And what that mirrors is exactly how they feel about themselves. They're dating people of lower character because that's what they think about themselves. Are you afraid of being found out? You did something in the past and you're afraid it's going to come up again. Do you have memories that persecute you in the evening, in the quiet hour? Are you the kind of person that's always got to keep noise around you with the radio or an iPod or the television because you don't want to take time to think because you know where your thoughts will take you and your thoughts will persecute you? Do you find yourself criticizing yourself frequently and it's rather easy to do so? Are you a perfectionist? 
Do you try to tightly control your behavior or the behavior of others to present an image that you think is actually better than what is in your heart? Do you have a desire to flee holy things and it makes you nervous to be in a worship service or to open the Bible or to have an open-hearted walk in conversation with God in prayer? You, you really are avoiding that because you don't want to get next to holiness because you feel like you can't approach that. Do you fear relationships with new people because you fear they'll find out who you really are? If one or all of these mark you, it may be that you have a problem with unresolved guilt. And, and you may not understand this, some of you who don't struggle with unresolved guilt, but don't feel guilty about having unresolved guilt. Those who have unresolved guilt oftentimes keep accumulating things to make themselves feel guilty. There's a church in Modesto, California, where the pastor encouraged folks to write down on a postcard anonymously the sins with which they were struggling, over which they had unresolved guilt. And they were, without placing their name on them, to place them on the walls of the worship center if they felt comfortable doing so. Again, their names weren't on them. And each Sunday, this congregation took four or five of those unresolved sins that made them feel guilty, and they would take time in the worship service to pray for them. And some of those sins were, I've had an abortion. I'm about to go bankrupt because of my spending. I fear what people may think. I've committed and I am committing adultery. My favorite one is, my dad is right, but I'll never tell him. <laughs> Let's imagine we were to do that. Do you have something you would place there on the wall? It's bothering you. It's not resolved. Elbert Hibbard made a half-truth. The first part of his statement is true, not the last part. But I'm going to quote him anyway. He said, we are punished by our sins, not for them. Half of that's true. The last half is not true. But we are indeed punished by our sins. I've got good news for you if you're struggling. There's a Savior at the right hand of the Father that would love to cancel and resolve your guilt before God. And you can have that instantaneously and eternally today by Almighty God. Here in Mark chapter 2, we've got a lovely story that happened historically in the life of Jesus. Jesus was preaching, some men heard about it, and they nearly tore up a house getting their friend to Jesus because they were thrilled that he was there. And Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, forgave their friend that they delivered to Jesus. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. And then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, 
Well, why does this man speak blasphemies? Who, who can forgive sin but God alone? But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, and he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to encourage us all, with unresolved guilt, or with guilt merely in the past and nothing but joy pulsating through our hearts, let's raise the roof on forgiveness. Let's tear the place up if necessary to find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Well, why should we do that? Well, first, because of the word of forgiveness. The word of forgiveness. How can we create an atmosphere where people will rush to the forgiveness of God? How can I create an atmosphere, an environment in my own heart and life where I will come to the forgiveness of of God. Well, we find it here in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, but there's a background here. The day before in Capernaum, Jesus Christ was doing miracles, and he emphasized his miracle working power along with his healing power. And so when he showed back up in Capernaum in chapter 2, verse 1, it's no wonder they crowded around this house where Jesus was preaching. In fact, the crowd was so large and they were so packed tight that the truth is, is that others could not get into the house. And it says in chapter 2, verse 1, with that crowd there, what did Jesus do? Did he reignite a healing ministry? Oh, no. It says in chapter 2, at the end of uh, verse 2, and he preached the word to them. He was already marked with healing as a healer. But Jesus Christ wanted to clarify his ministry, therefore he preached the word to them, and they brought more to him. Jesus exalted the word, the ministry of the word, because healing could do good for them for this lifetime. But the word could introduce them to forgiveness, which would do them good for an eternity. You see, if people are only introduced to the healing power of Christ, that does them good for their sojourn on the earth. But if they're introduced to his forgiveness, then that does them good for the total person in the spirit and the body for all eternity because forgiveness is for eternity. And when someone has eternal forgiveness, they have eternal healing as well. So Jesus exalted the ministry of the word. Anytime someone meets forgiveness, it's usually because of a substantive exposure to the Word of God. And Jesus exalted the ministry of the Word because of that. Now, one of my favorite preachers in all the earth used to be Jim and Tommy's pastor in Houston. And that's John Bazzano at First Baptist Church, Houston. Grateful that he still has a preaching ministry today. But Brother John told the story one time of the power of the Word at First Baptist Houston. He said he had a guest speaker in one Sunday night. And this guest speaker spoke on the cooperative program. He spoke on stewardship and tithing and giving. He spoke that night to that crowd assembled on Sunday night in the Sunday evening worship service. By the way, do folks around here know what a Sunday evening worship service is? Anyway, they spoke on Sunday night and um, 
This cooperative program speaker, this denominational worker, spoke on the cooperative program, tithing and stewardship, and extended the invitation, and that evening, eight people got saved. <laughs> not, only was the, not only was stewardship improved, but someone came to Christ. Folks, when someone comes to Jesus Christ, it's usually because of a substantive exposure to the Word of God. And when we have, uh, give people a substantive exposure to the Word of God, then we have a greater opportunity to expose them to forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That is why Beach Haven Baptist Church needs to be marked and signed as a church that preaches and teaches the Word from the pulpit and in the Sunday school class. And I, I don't want to say we won't ever do anything different in the future. And we may with some of the small group ministries that we do, but never ever at the expense of the Sunday school ministry or the Bible preaching teaching ministry of the pulpit. God help us if we ever diminish anything like that. We exalt the word. In fact, David said, oh Lord, you've exalted your word above your name. I'm not sure I understand all there is to know about that, but if God exalts His Word, and if we find it exalted in the ministry of Jesus, then that is precisely what we do. If you want an environment of forgiveness in your own heart and life, and in your community and in home, exalt the Word of God, the ministry of the Word. But there's a second thing we want to bring down the house for forgiveness, and that is because not only of the Word of forgiveness, but the wonder of forgiveness. In my first church in East Texas, I had the opportunity to lead a young lady to the Lord. Her name was Marty. Marty came to Christ, and God began to change her life. And that was a lovely thing because, frankly, in that community, Marty did not have the best reputation. Marty had engaged in an awful lot of foolish moral behavior, but God changed her life. And she began to win her friends, and she became an anchor in that youth ministry for other kids in that community to come to Christ and find a safe place. And it was a marvel. People talked about how God changed Marty's life. And I remember the next summer, I was working part-time at the school where I went, and I was painting a building along with uh, three other fellows. And Marty came up one day to visit with us, and we were talking, and she told us that she thought the most beautiful word in all the Bible happened to be forgiveness. And you know something? I think she's right. We use it so often, and it's so common. But ladies and gentlemen, when you meet the forgiveness of God, you never get over it. And I believe that's what these men experienced here in Mark chapter 2. Now, in the first century homes in Galilee, they were rather simple homes. And you could get on top of a roof because usually there was a staircase on the side of one of those homes. Now, we've had a lot of little boys since then, and in wisdom, we've eliminated most staircases up the side of houses onto the roof, which I think is very wise. But in that day, they would go up into the staircase and the roofs were flat. And the roofs were made in such a way that they would lay timber down first and then sticks on top of the timber crosswise and then straw on top of the sticks. And then they would cover it with mud. And from the mud, they would make tiles and place tiles on top of that. And so in order to get through a roof, you had to go through some considerable labor. And without electric power tools, uh, it could be hard on your hands. Well, these men were so thrilled that Jesus was in that house that they went up the side of the roof with their paralytic friend. They carried him up this narrow staircase, got on top of that roof, and tore the roof open and lowered him down before Jesus. So they tore up the tile, they tore up the remaining mud, they tore up the straw, they tore up the stick, and they pulled away somehow some of these narrow timbers to lay him down in front 
of Jesus. Now, they didn't ask permission before they did that. They just tore the place up and got him before Jesus. Now, it's rather interesting. I have carefully researched some New Testament archaeological textbooks, and I have found that archaeologists have discovered the names of four of these men that carried their friend. Let me tell you their names. Number one, the first guy was Bobby Brokenness. And Bobby said, fellas, I know he's been a paralytic for a long time, but I can't stand that condition any longer. Jesus is in town, and I've got to do something to get him to Jesus. I can't stand his condition any longer. I'm not going to live with it. Well, Vern the verbalizer is the second fellow, and he responded, I've got little patience with those who say, if we walk correctly in front of the man, he'll learn to walk himself. Oh no, it's going to take supernatural intervention. I've got to get him to Jesus. Well, William Work speaks up as well. He says, guys, we can feel good all day long about our opportunities, but I'm ready to pick this fellow up myself and get him to Jesus. I'm ready for grunt work and perspiration. Let's go and get him to Jesus. But there's a fourth fellow, and that's Perry Perseverance. They arrived at the scene, and the place was packed. They couldn't get in through the door. They couldn't get in through a window. And Perry said, no matter, I've got an idea. Let's tear up the roof and lower him before Jesus and let nothing get in the way. These men trusted the power of Christ. They trusted the Lord Jesus. They had heard him, and the noise about him and the report about him had gone throughout all Capernaum, and they were in wonder over Jesus. And just as the Father would damage his son on the cross for sin, these men damaged the house to get this man to Jesus Christ. They were full of wonder over the Lord Jesus Christ. May I encourage you, please be very, very careful about getting bored with the day Jesus saved you. Never let that become a casual affair. Even if it happened when you were a child, or it's long past in your distant memories when you were a teenager. Never get over the day where you can fail to weep, at least in your heart, over the day that Jesus came to you. That's going to help you create an environment where you will have a heart and a soul to get other people to His forgiveness. Well, we need to, we need to uh, tear up the place because of the word and the wonder of forgiveness, but then also because of the way of forgiveness. The North American Mission Board has a ministry called the, Ethi- uh, the um, Evangelism Response Center. And I've trained folks and uh, uh, served with that through the years. And what that essentially is, is that that is a call center. That is a call center and a phone bank that is now with technology automated that receives phone calls from people around the country and directs those calls to Southern Baptists who have logged on to this phone system. And these people are looking for the good news of salvation. The phone number is printed on gospel tracts printed by the North American Mission Board. It's printed also on New Testaments that the North American Mission Board publishes and distributes. It's also on um, the uh, uh, copies of the Holman uh, Holman, uh, publications as well, the Southern Baptist Bible Publishing Division. It it is uh, in magazines, it's in literature. Once in a while, the Billy Graham organization will use it as well. Uh, Sometimes Love Worth Finding with Adrian Rogers will use it, and others will use it as well. And so there can be as many as 60,000 calls a year. And on the other end of the line is a Southern Baptist ready to lead someone to Jesus Christ. Now, there are churches 
that receive information from those who make decisions and they follow them up. And one day I hope that we'll do that as well. For those that are not able to get out or not so minded, then they can lead someone to Christ when they come ask them simply by the telephone. There is also uh, an opportunity to do that over the internet. And there are some leading people to Christ through the internet. Well, I logged on one day to the Evangelism Response Center. And a young lady called and said, I've just listened to a Billy Graham presentation. And I want you to tell me your story. I launched into it. And I told her how I came to Christ as Savior and Lord. And she said, that's such a beautiful story. Well, I'd never thought of beauty in me in the same sentence. But I said, well, thank you. She said, do you think God will forgive me? I said, oh, yes. No matter what you've done, God will forgive you. In fact, he forgave Moses, and he forgave David, and he forgave Paul, and they were all guilty of murder. And with that, she stopped me. She said, oh, no, there's no way. That's awful. For God to forgive people that have murdered? What do you mean? And with that, she ended the phone call. She was offended that the grace and forgiveness of God could extend to someone like Moses, David, and Paul. All three guilty of murder or conspiring to murder, or in Paul's case, using the instruments of the government to bring the death of others. Well, folks, what would, what would we be like if we didn't have a few jailbirds like that telling the gospel around the nation? I want to say to you, God's love and grace goes so deep and is so wide, so high, and so strong. He can forgive a Moses. He can forgive a David. And he can forgive an Apostle Paul. And he can forgive you. Don't stumble over that. Do not be, do not be offended by that. You have to understand, all sin is a wicked thing before God. God does not judge sin the way that we judge it. It reminds me of the story of Debbie Beasley the daughter of Manly Beasley, great uh, Southern Baptist revivalist years ago, she was in a service accompanying Iris Uri Blue. And Iris, as I told you a few weeks ago, happened to be a woman engaged in prostitution, drug addiction. She'd spent about seven years in state penitentiary in Huntsville, uh, Texas, and was uh, all six foot three of her, just a mess. Well, Iris started giving her testimony after she came to Christ. And Debbie, who'd grown up as a preacher's daughter and had a really calm, ordinary, obedient childhood and teenage life, accompanied Iris to this speaking engagement. When they arrived, the pastor that introduced Iris didn't know Debbie from Iris. And early in the service, he introduced Iris but pointed to Debbie. And Debbie panicked. And she thought, they're going to think I'm the prostitute, the heroin addict, and the jailbird. Well, when it came time to speak, Iris got up and spoke. But Debbie thought a little bit, and she said, You know what? I was guilty of some awful self-righteousness. I I was not engaged in prostitution. I was not a heroin addict. I've never spent a day in a penitentiary. But the truth is, is that it took as much grace for God to forgive me as a little girl as it did Iris when she was in her 20s. Because sin is sin, and it's an offense to a holy God. Well, wait a minute. My sin's a little sin. Well, then why do you keep doing it? And why did you do it? If it's so small, stop it. I will tell you. I need to warn you if that's the route you're going to take. If you try to stop sinning, Without the salvation and the power of Jesus Christ, you're not going to succeed. You're going to get worse. 
Sin, according to Romans 7, will become alive and activated in you the more you fight against it, and you will become worse over the next 12 months than you were the previous 12. It takes the power and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ to overcome. So I want to say to you, whether it's Irish, Uri Blue, former prostitute, heroin addict, uh, former convict, or Debbie Beasley, the preacher's daughter who grew up in an obedient, submissive manner, the truth is both equally need the blood and the death of Jesus Christ no matter who they are. Oh, and I wish how this young lady had understood that. We find much of this in Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 12. Here, Jesus clarifies the way to forgiveness is by faith. And he minces no words about it. He's very quick to make that very, very clear. And that's why Debbie Beasley could be saved. That's why Debbie Beasley, as the pastor's daughter, could come to Christ. And that is why Iris Uri Blue, the convict, heroin addict, prostitute, could come to Jesus Christ. Because we all need to come by faith because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, we have to come by faith because we cannot come by righteousness because we don't have any. One hymn writer said, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, and the death of Jesus Christ is our only hope. Therefore, we come and bring faith to Him. So faith in Jesus Christ, who He calls Himself the Son of Man, is the way to forgiveness. And the way of forgiveness is faith. And so the way of faith makes uh, forgiveness several things. One, it makes it a possibility. Chapter 2, verse 5, Jesus said, or Mark writes, When Jesus saw their faith, He said, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Imagine if God said, The way to be forgiven is to bring a certain amount of money to religious and charitable causes. Can you imagine how much of the world would be excluded? When half the world lives on less than $2 a day? Can you imagine how much of the world would be excluded? What if you had to be religiously disciplined? What would all the ADH people do? The ADH people would all be excluded. But Jesus did not say money or discipline or some other human effort. He simply said faith. That is something, beloved, anyone can do. Anyone can place faith in Jesus Christ. Anyone can trust Him enough to come to Him. And this indicates God's wide and broad and large and boiling desire to grant forgiveness to all. What a marvelous thing. In fact, you can trust Jesus Christ as much as you trust that the air you're breathing will help you stay alive. And if you trust the air that you breathe, to avoid poisoning you and delivering toxins into your body, certainly you can trust the Son of God. And so the way of faith makes forgiveness a possibility, but then it also makes it a prize. Look in chapter 2, verse 5, what he said. When he saw their faith, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Think about all the names guilty people are called. Think about all the ugly names they're called when they disappoint people with their morals when they disappoint people with how they spend, when they disappoint others with how they handle their relationships and marriage and their children. Think of all the ugly, nasty names people are called. And now look what Jesus calls this man. He uses a familial name, a family name. Son, your sins are forgiven you. This is what God wants to call you. He wants to call you 
His child. So the way of faith places those who trust into a family relationship. So the way of faith makes uh, forgiveness a possibility and a prize, but then it makes it a priority. He says here to a paralyzed man, watch this, he says to a paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven, not your paralysis is healed. Now, hold on just a minute, Jesus. Wait, we brought him here to you. He's paralyzed. I mean, you saw him carried in by four men, tore up the roof, dropped him down. Lord, he needs healing. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because forgiveness of the soul is priority with him. And with forgiveness, then the healing of the body would be eternal. Otherwise, it's temporal. So the way of faith makes forgiveness a possibility, a prize, a priority, and then it makes it the point. Now there's a stunning, stunning reference here to Jesus Christ that you don't need to miss. He says in chapter 2, verse number 6, it says some of the scribes were reasoning within their hearts, this man blasphemes, who can forgive sin but God alone? Jesus said, why are you doing this in verse number 9? Which is easier, to say something or to do something? To say your sins are forgiven or to perform a miracle of healing? Watch this, verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority or power on earth to forgive, I'm going to do this, he says. Take up your bed and walk and go to your house. Now it's interesting that Jesus here in the context of forgiveness refers to himself as the Son of Man. Not the forgiver, not the Savior. He could have done that. But what he does is that he picks up a term from Daniel chapter 7 that displays the mighty rule of God's coming King and Messiah. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of four different kingdoms, and Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, comes and obliterates them all because they're evil and they oppose all that's righteous and good. One of those kingdoms happens to appear in Revelation 13 with the Antichrist. So the Son of Man is a term that calls to mind Daniel chapter 7, which is God's king engaging in military conflict and decisive, overwhelming uh, battle against the forces of evil. And here it is used in the context of forgiveness. Now why would he do that? Why would Jesus use a militaristic term for himself when talking about forgiveness instead of the term Savior or some other term like forgiver. Why would he do that? Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to understand this. Jesus Christ intends on blowing your sins and guilt to smithereens like he will evil in his second coming. That is precisely what Jesus wants to do. And what he will do is that he will do what many of you have seen in bombed out villages and pictures on the evening news. He will take sin and obliterate it and wipe it out completely. That's what Christ wants to do. And so this is the point of what Jesus is accomplishing. You know, early in my Christian life, about a month after I came to Christ, I was introduced to the forgiveness of Christ. I met him, but then I had to learn how to forgive someone else. Right after I came to Christ, I had some friends tell me that a real good friend of mine had done me wrong when I was in high school. 
Don't want to go into all the details, but it was about a girl. And he did me wrong. And I found out about it. In fact, I never told him this, but he actually did me a favor. <laughs> and, uh, oh, I hope I don't enjoy this too much. But anyway, um, I found out about it. And I called him. And before I called him, I felt awful for him. Because I knew his conscience was tender. And we had a good friendship. We did. And so I called him on the phone and I said, John, and by the way, she was there when I called. I said, John, I know what you did. Now, can you imagine how he felt when I said, John, I know what you did, and then I named it? Can you imagine his anxiety? And there she is. Can you imagine his stress level? John was fair-skinned, and I'm sure he turned the shade of red of the pew. I knew him that well. Can you imagine the anxiety, how it skyrocketed, skyrocketed into orbit in his heart and soul? And so I said, John, I know what you did, but I forgive you. And in a moment... He had relief. And I heard him on the other end of the phone go, that poor fella had been struggling with guilt for a couple of months and, and the knowledge that he had betrayed a dear and good friend. Well, after that, we, hang, we hung out a lot more than what we had previously. And God called me to ministry, and I began to witness to friends. And a lot of the friends John and I hung out with really began to make fun of me for doing that. We had a powerful revival in our high school that didn't include many of my former friends. And we had a powerful revival at our church. And some of those friends that John and I shared um, as friends, they, they ridiculed me. But John never did. John never did. And he and I communicate with each other today through social media on occasion. Can you imagine, though, the anxiety when he was exposed and the relief when he was forgiven? Now, folks, listen to me. I had only known the forgiveness of God for a month. And with that real simple, easy act, in that moment, at least for me, it brought about forgiveness to this young man. If I could do that, knowing God's forgiveness only for a month, imagine what a God could do for you who's known forgiveness for eternity. God is the expert forgiver. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, Forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a permanent attitude, and it's a permanent attitude with God. And so there, there's no excuse in this day to walk another moment without the forgiveness of God and resolving it before God today. Let me ask you, do you trust the love of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe His death was the all-sufficient atoning sacrifice for you? That Jesus paid your sin debt at the cross? Do you believe God victoriously raised Him from the dead? Then I want to say to you, now where you are, in just a moment, you can call on Him to forgive you. Well, I'm a Christian. I've already done that. Keep doing it. Coming before God is a daily discipline we engage in. 
have our hearts and souls cleared and cleaned. You can do that. You especially can do it. He promises in Psalms 50, 15, Call to me in the day of trouble, and I will answer you, and you shall glorify me. I know that's not what you're thinking right now, but God who raised the dead can do it, and He wants to do it today. Lord Jesus, we praise You that You're authorized. You're authorized to blow our guilt to fragments of quivering death. We bless Your name that that though we have offended you more times than we can count, you've gone to painful lengths to forgive us. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be. How marvelous is my Savior's love for me. And I want to pray that by your Spirit, you will prompt us to cry out to you for transforming forgiveness and drive us to share it publicly by profession and baptism, church membership, and song and worship in life. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song. And as we sing, our staff will be here in the front. They will receive you. We want you to seek the help that you need to meet the forgiveness of Almighty God. We'd love to help you. There's no magic in walking down the aisle, but simply step out from where you are. Others will move out of your way if necessary. We do it all the time here. And you come meet a staff member here and share your spiritual need. And we'll help you take steps towards the forgiveness of God. Maybe God's doing something else in your life that you need our prayers for. And if you come today, that others won't think that you need to be forgiven for something necessarily. It may be some other need. We don't know. We'll just pray for you. But I want to ask you to quickly stand with me right now. I'm going to finish my prayer. We're going to ask you to come. Father, would you do a neat work in lives today? Help them to come. And I pray, dear God, no one would leave here with unresolved guilt but they would find peace in the name of your son in Jesus name we pray amen you come you come please come don't wait come and how amazing.